If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. This is your typical radio ad while eating a Crunch Bar. This is Automatic of Auto's Used Cars. This weekend only, we're having a whale. Bring the kids. See for yourself. It is huge. You're going to make a big splash. No other dealer can say they have a whale like this. When things sound dull, turn up the fun with Crunch. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. The story of Edward VIII and Wallace Simpson is often painted as a great love story of the 20th century. The king making the ultimate sacrifice by abdicating the British throne to be with the woman he loved. But a new book by Andrew Lowney, exploring what happened in the years after the abdication, paints a very different picture of the couple's relationship. Putting the questions to Andrew was our acting digital editor, Eleanor Evans. Andrew, thanks so much again for joining us on the History Extra podcast. It's a pleasure to be here again. And your latest book is Traitor King, The Duke and Duchess of Windsor in Exile. Uh, And you write that no book before has started after the abdication in 1936 and looked fully uh, at what happened to the Windsors in their exile. And yours is an account that takes in the Windsors' actions through the Second World War and mid-century, right through to their later years. Um, And before we get into um, what's such, such a fascinating book and account, I hoped we could start by reminding listeners of the events that led to the abdication crisis in 1936 and where readers will begin. Yes, I mean, the book begins on the 10th of December 1936 when he gives his abdication broadcast. And this is really the culmination of a crisis over the last, uh, well, really, since he came to uh, become king in January 1936. Uh, And uh, he had been having an affair with Wallace Simpson since, um, certainly since 1934. He'd met her in 1931. 
uh, and he was determined to marry her. And the problem was that she'd been married before. In fact, she was married to someone else at this time. Uh, and the problem became even more acute when in October she got a divorce from her second husband because he was head of the Church of England. He wasn't allowed as head of the Church of England who didn't approve of, of, of divorcees to marry her. So he was being forced to make a choice between marrying the woman, having a morganatic marriage, uh, and um, uh, taking, giving up the throne. And he was sort of manoeuvred, I would say, by Baldwin and various other people just because of the way he, he got the support from various communities, particularly the Dominions, to, to give up the throne. But I think Edward was, was, if he had to have a choice, he wanted to marry Wallace rather than to, to, to be king. Uh, and that rather suited the establishment, who were nervous about her and her loyalties and indeed his own commitment to the job. So the crisis really came to a head in December 1936 when his younger brother, Bertie, basically stepped up to the plate and took over. And it's the only time uh, in modern British history that a monarch has abdicated. And I think we still see the shockwaves to this day about a royal giving up his duty for his own personal uh, um, desires. If we can look at um, the Duke of Windsor and this sort of his initial feelings after we, he's made this decision. I feel um, it was very interesting to me how um, rejuvenated almost this decision seems to him in stark contrast to uh, many people around him. Yes, I mean, that night uh, when he makes the broadcast, he has dinner with other members of the royal family. They're all absolutely shattered uh, and, and really nervous about what the future will hold. Uh, and he feels elated by the whole thing. Uh, and he drives down after the dinner, he drives down to Portsmouth, catches a boat and goes into exile uh, on the continent. He's got to be basically in a different country from Wallace while he waits for the decree absolute to come through on a divorce and um, to wait for them to get married. But he, he feels initially a completely free man now from all the responsibilities that have been hanging over him. I mean, that soon changes. And within weeks, he's pestering his brother about a financial settlement. He is a very bad house guest. He's staying uh, at a castle just outside Vienna, lent to him by the Rothschild family. Uh, and uh, I think he, he is very impatient to, to, to sort of move on with his life. And he can't until this decree absolute comes through, which it does in April. And he's able then to, to marry in June. And in contrast to um, his sort of optimism for the future, what's known about how the Duchess of Windsor was feeling, Wallace was feeling at the stage? Well, I think everyone perceives this as a great love story. Uh, and I think the tragedy is it wasn't. Here was a woman who enjoyed her uh, flirtation with the Prince of Wales and then the King. She enjoyed being his mistress. She actually still uh, enjoyed being with her husband, Anna Simpson. And I think it's clear from, from books being published recently that she uh, was still writing to him and still really half in love with him. But the problem was that Edward was so obsessed with her that he said he would kill himself if she didn't uh, basically marry him. And so she was emotionally blackmailed into this marriage. Uh, and though she made the best of it, um, it, it was not what she wanted. She enjoyed the trappings, but she did not want to be tied to this boy man who was really very uh, entitled and, and frankly rather boring. Uh, and so uh, it didn't start off very well. I mean, there's a story told by Gore Vidal, literally on the first day after they got married. She, she came to, to, to his bed, to, to the foot of his bed. They didn't seem to share a bed. Uh, not Gore Vidal's bed, I should say, but the Duke's. Uh, and, and said, you know, what are we going to do with the rest of our lives? 
Um, uh, and I think the story I'm telling is really the, the aftermath of this great event uh, and the sadness of this exile and this attempt really to fill pretty empty lives. Right. Well, if we can delve into that, that a little more then, what is the expectation on the part of the Duke of Windsor and what sort of um, role is he expecting to be created for himself and what, what's the reality he comes up against there? Well, I don't think he really thought it through. I think he thought that he was going to be treated like the younger brother of the king uh, and therefore in terms of, for example, the financial settlement. Uh, he, uh, I think, thought that he could in a sense, have all the benefits of royalty, the trappings. The, the, he, for example, wanted his wife to be called Her Royal Highness, which, she, of course, she wasn't given, uh, and that he could somehow play some role, just the good bits, visiting, uh, keep up, for example, his military connections as the Colonel of the Welsh Guards. Uh, I thought he thought he would be able to come back to Britain. But it was very, made very clear to him by the royal family that he had let them all down, that Bertie basically needed to be given free reign to establish himself. He was quite a uh, not very confident person. He didn't want to be overshadowed by his older brother, who did have a certain charisma and a certain popularity, uh, and that he should basically keep out of Britain for several years. Uh, and there really was no job for, for a former king, uh, and he would have to just make the best of it. Uh, and that was the problem, that all the way through uh, his life, Edward kept asking for jobs, but there was no job really for a former king, uh, particularly given his rather dodgy associates. Uh, I mean, he could have done work with charities or arts organisations. He perhaps could have had some sort of business career, though I think that would have been quite difficult. So um, it was very difficult to know what role he could fulfil. He didn't really want to do charitable roles. He, he wanted status, uh, but he didn't really want to have to work for it. Well, a, a very, um, very interesting part of your book, a theme of your book, is um, how you look at the the views you mentioned, the very confronting views um, of Edward and Wallace. Um, and you mentioned how he may well have been manoeuvred towards abdication due to some of these views. Um, what is the evidence there for how he was regarding the sort of rise of Nazism and uh, movements on the continent in the late 1930s? Well, it had become very clear, uh, even before he became king, that he was very sympathetic to Germany. Uh, he was 14th, 16th German. He spoke fluent German. His mother was a German princess. Uh, his sympathies, he, he loved strong leadership. I mean, he was very sympathetic to some of the Nazi um, uh, dogma. Uh, and he had, even as king, been tried to interfere with politics, with the Anglo-German naval agreements, uh, with the occupation of the Rhineland. He had, he had tried to interfere and play things down. He was much more concerned with the threat of communism than he was with fascism. And he thought that the fascists would act as a bulwark against the communists, and that would save the empire. Uh, and as indeed many in, in uh, aristocrats and bankers and others felt the same way. But he was very open about it. Uh, and I think uh, what shocked me was that he continued to hold these views, not just after his abdication, but right through to the Second World War and during the Second World War and indeed after the Second World War, when everyone pretty much had realised that one had to stand up to Hitler uh, and that Nazi doctrine was a pretty appalling thing. So it's these very strong um, sympathies for the Nazis, and indeed Wallace had them as well. She was very close to Ribbentrop, the German ambassador in London, 
though she, of course, denied it. But it's clear from looking at private diaries and from uh, um, declassified government documents, documents in private archives, that um, you know they were much closer to the Nazis than, than I think people have realised. Uh, and, of course, the Nazis were courting them. They realised that they needed to, to get Edward's side. The great shock for the Nazis was, in fact, the fact that he abdicated because they lost their then since their man in the palace. Uh, and so uh, it's... But the, the, the Ribbentrop had, had, in fact, been sent to London to uh, work on them uh, because of his friendship. There were others. There was a German spy called Stephanie von Hollenhaar who was also sent to work through the Society Hostess Emerald Cunard. So it, it was quite clearly a, 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 a tar- he was targeted by the Germans and he succumbed. Right. And if we can investigate that a little more, is it fair to say then that um, your book does sort of go against a perception that, that he was a naive target, that he was act more active than has previously been laid out in terms of encouraging and, and working with um, these people? Yes, I think the conventional view, and it's the view, for example, of Philip Ziegler in the official life of Edward VIII, is that he was a dupe, uh, that he was targeted, certainly, but that and he was rather naive, and he perhaps used it as leverage in terms of his negotiations with his family. This is particularly true in the summer of 1940, uh, during something called Operation Willie, when the Germans tried to recruit him as a, as a British pétain. But um, I think it's... The evidence is there, and it's it's evidence from, for example, Alan Lassell's private diaries and from Guy Little, who's now my five officer, his diaries. Uh, and we can move on to this. But I think the evidence is that, that he, for example, engaged with them, he responded to them. Uh, and if we move on to Operation Willie, uh, he knew that the Germans were in touch with him. They, they actually, for example, um, offered to take care of his possessions in, in his house and possessions in Paris and the south of France, and that he was dealing in code with them. And this was against the Treachery Act. I mean, he could have been not just court-martialed, he could have been tried for treason. Yes, it's a remarkable um, re- remarkable evidence and a remarkable telegram. Um, and, and all of this um, is detailed in your book, and it leads to this feeling that the Duke uh, was a serious security leak. What, what sort of happens there with manoeuvrings on behalf of the British government and the royal family as well? Well, there have been concerns about his indiscretion even when he was king. I mean, uh, cabinet uh, papers were left around. He, he mixed with a lot of people who were regarded as, as, as spies. Uh, and that continued, particularly there's a period when he he's attached to the French uh, forces in, during the Phony War, when um, uh, everyone, but from George VI and Churchill, is very concerned about his um, indis- uh, how indiscreet he is with a very close friend of his called Charles Beddoe. This is the man who lent his castle for Winston to get married. And Charles Beddoe is, in fact, a Nazi agent. Uh, and they're getting reports that Beddoe is passing this material to the German ambassador in The Hague, and it's been passed on. And these include, for example, British war plans, which has, of course, an impact on the evasion in May 1940. Uh, and the way that they, the, the British deal with this is they try and neutralise him by sending him off to the Bahamas as governor uh, uh, in the hope that he will be a long way away and can't engage and be this figurehead for the Germans. 
but what I think I do show is also during this period in the summer of 1940, when the Germans are negotiating with him about becoming this figurehead, um, there are all sorts of unexplained things. For example, the Germans halting uh, when they could have destroyed the British Expeditionary Force before Dunkirk is because they're prepared to do a peace deal. And there's a lot about the peace negotiations that went on in the summer of 1940, which are linked to uh, Edward's uh, negotiations with the Germans. But yeah, in, in August 1940, he's packed off to the Bahamas and they hope that'll be the end of him. But of course it's not. I wonder as well if we can uh, just go back, as I think I skipped us ahead a little there. Um, you mentioned he's a, a, obviously a firm supporter of a peaceful compromise um, rather than war. What does that mean for his views on, on the Germans' actions bombing England? Well, it's it's this is what's so extraordinary, and we have this from the captured German documents, which were not meant to be found. They were they were by chance discovered by accident. But um, he's telling the Germans not only does he believe in in a compromised peace. In fact, he comes back to Britain in January 1940 and sees various people, including Beaverbrook, to try and campaign for a, for a negotiated peace. Uh, that's one thing, but um, it's. It's clear also that um, he is encouraging the Germans, saying that if you bomb them, they're more likely to come to the negotiating table. And there have even been suggestions that he uh, basically encouraged them to bomb Buckingham Palace in September 1940, uh, thinking that that would do the trick. So he's he's not just disloyal, um, he's, he's actively working against his own brother. So you mentioned he's he's packed off to the Bahamas where it's felt that he will be um, away from the continent and unable to have the same sort of influence. Um, how does he feel about this and, and how does uh, the Duchess of Windsor feel about this as well? Well, they hate it. They describe it like the Elba and they feel they've been completely exiled or St. Helena. Um, I mean, they like the fact that they're quite close to the States and that's again a concern for the British and indeed the Americans because, of course, the Americans haven't come into the war at this point. Roosevelt has got a crucial election in November 1940. Uh, they don't want to give any sucker to the isolationists and the Windsors are very keen to, to get to the States and so there's a great battle to keep them away. But when they get to the Bahamas, they then are targeted by various, um, again, Nazi uh, sympathisers, Nazi agents of influence, at least, among a Swedish industrialist called Alex Venegren, and indeed some American businessmen, notably a man called James Mooney. So he, he gets into to, to bad company in, in the Bahamas as well. Uh, and he's uh, still trying to work for, for a compromise piece of some sort. Um, he He's we think, in touch with, with some of these intermediaries in Portugal and elsewhere. Uh, Roosevelt is so concerned about this that he has the FBI put him under surveillance whenever he comes to, to the States. And I think it's pretty clear that he's been put under surveillance by the British. Uh, his detectives, even in the 1936 um, and 37, were reporting back to Scotland Yard and the Home Office and the Palace, indeed, on his activities and who he was seeing. He, of course, made his famous trip to Germany in October 1937 when he met Hitler. But um, I think all the people around him, his entourage, are actually agents for the intelligence services as well. So, um, and there's postal censorship. He... Uh, thinks that he's, his stuff is not being read, but I suspect it is. Certainly Wallace's mail has been read, uh, and we can see the postal censorship reports there on her and indeed on others. 
So he's he's continuing his treacherous activities in the Bahamas, uh, saying that he can come back at any time. And even when uh, America comes into the war in December 1941, that doesn't that still doesn't stop him intriguing against uh, the British. Pretty pretty damning stuff. If I can pick up then on it might seem a more frivolous point, I suppose, but picking up on his lifestyle and I mean the extravagance and self-interest of their lives is pretty prevalent throughout your account but during wartime you know how how are they is there any sense that they're sort of tempering this during wartime no of course not I mean they 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 can't live as royals uh, but they try to uh, and of course that gets them into all sorts of problems financial problems but they have a huge huge mansion in the south of France they have a, a, a large townhouse in Paris uh, which they spend a huge sums of money uh, redecorating. When they get to the Bahamas, even though the government house has been redecorated for them, they say it's not good enough, uh, and they would like large sums of money spent on doing it up. Uh, uh, and they're told by the colonial office, "Well, this is the cost of a, a Spitfire, um, you know, and we can't have this." But you know, he's insistent. Same thing, he wants to bring his valet and his piper and all sorts of people who uh, have been called up for active service. Uh, and he just thinks that he can have exactly what he wants. Uh, so there's a bit of a tussle there. And in fact, he has a little strop and threatens to go off to Canada to his ranch unless it's done for him. And that happens all the way through. He threatens not to take up jobs uh, if if he can't get his own way. And sometimes he does. He is given his own way just to have a quiet life. But I mean, even when they make their trips to the States, though they claim that they're doing this very modestly, they travel the press reports with 85 pieces of luggage, which has to be uh, put in the hallway. There's just no room in the hotel f- to store it. They have a huge retinues of staff. Uh, they are given by this man, James Mooney of General Motors, a, a, a cavalade of cars. They go and stay in the most expensive hotels. Uh, and um, Wallace will say, well, I'm only really interested in the poor people of the Bahamas. And then she goes and buys 250 uh, dresses at uh, one of the largest, uh, most, most expensive dress shops. So it, it's very clear they were extravagant and had really a completely tin ear about what was happening uh, during the war and the deprivations that people were going through. They, they just continued to live their pre-war life. Okay, there is one episode during uh, the Duke of Windsor's governorship of the Bahamas, which you say was the making of him. Um, What can you say about this sort of of episode and how he responds? Well, one of the developments that goes on uh, in the Bahamas is it's begun, it's used as a base, uh, a training base, RAF training base, uh, and uh, the Americans are brought in to, to build the base. That, of course, brings work for the local population and helps with the economic uh, restoration of the, of, of the island, which is, is, has, has always lagged behind just because of the way the government is organised. Uh, and um, there's a resentment because the imported um, labour, many Americans are paid at a higher daily rate than the Bahamians. And there's a riot, uh, and he comes back from the States to deal with it, and he deals with their problems uh, and shows that he's sympathetic uh, and shows that actually he's quite effective. Uh, And one has to feel sorry for him because he's caught between the strictures of the colonial office and something called the Bay Street Boys, which are basically local businessmen who who basically run the island uh, and who really don't want any reform and certainly don't want to improve the position of the non-white population which he, he sort of wants to do. And I would say it's also the making of Wallace, that someone who's really had nothing to do in her life uh, suddenly has this role running charities like the Red Cross 
uh, and um, she runs various uh, kitchens for for the servicemen. She is very keen on dealing with the health problems, particularly of the young native population. There's a very high rate of syphilis, so she is, a, I think, a very dedicated um, uh, charity worker. There, he is slightly more aimless. I mean, there's stories of him going to strip shows and driving his car across golf courses and drinking heavily. Uh, he's not a great example, but Wallace, I think, rises to the occasion much more. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Yes, I think we should have statues to Wallace. I mean, she saved us. Um, uh, you know, uh, it's clearly been one of the most traumatic moments uh, in royal history, uh, recent royal history, and of course it plays to that trope of the, of the crown between public service and private pleasure. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. Life is a highway and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. I'd really like to talk about the social life and the importance of that in their, their lives going forward. Well, at the end of the, uh, of the Bahamas, they, they hate the Bahamas, they hate the climate, they find it very parochial, uh, and they're, they're gunning to get a job, ideally is some sort of um, ambassador in America, or there's discussions of sending him to South America. Uh, but there's no job for him. Uh, the government are against him. Churchill's quite in favour. But um, the royal family are adamant that he has these very uh, dubious associates, most of whom have turned out to be collaborators, uh, that he is indiscreet and, frankly, not very dedicated to to public service. And so he comes back to to France. Uh, The advantage of France is that he is exempt from taxation there, which is a great attraction for him. The French um, take very good care of him and give him special privileges and, indeed, subsidise rent and houses and things. 
but even the French are worried about him because of uh, his friendships with noted collaborationists uh, during the war. But he, and basically any any decent people really want nothing to do with him. And so he has this group of uh, empty Cathy society and he moves half the year between the States, basically Palm Beach and Newport and, and New York, where he has big apartments in Waldorf, Astoria, uh, and um, Paris and south of France, with other um, industrialists and uh, businessmen who, in a sense, think he might be a useful person to know. And he sponges off them. They basically support his lifestyle. Uh, and he that's really what he does But from 1945 until uh, his death in 1972, uh, traveling the world, um, going to parties, um, playing golf, looking at his investments, often which are a tip from inside tips from his businessmen friends, uh, dealing in black currency. Of course, there were currency restrictions still uh, at this point. He's very active in it during his time in the Bahamas, and he continues in Paris. Indeed, there's a big scandal that's hushed up when his... Um, uh, and in fact, his his uh, secretary, who's responsible for all this, uh, is sacked and paid off when he threatens to go to the papers about it. Um, he's just a very dodgy character. Yes. So could you take us a little more into this sort of social scene they create for themselves um, in the, sort of the mid-century uh, and perhaps uh, share some of the opinions or, or that you surface in your account of, of what they were like? Well, I mean, they, um, uh, they they were upset that their dining room only took 24 for dinner. Um, and um, so they, they had to get bigger and bigger places. They entertained probably twice a week at dinner parties and, of course, were out pretty much every other night uh, at nightclubs and restaurants and at other people's houses. Um, they would often dictate who the guest list were at events if they were attending or try to, they would, uh, there are stories of them being invited to private dinners and asking what the menu is and if they can send their cook because they don't trust the, the cook of the house. Um, they um, get they exploit their royal position with uh, business ventures, rather dubious business ventures and endorsements. Um, they are not great employers. They don't pay the going rate because they think people should feel privileged to work for them. Uh, they certainly don't treat them well. It's a very demanding job. Uh, and uh, people often don't stay very long. They, they sat people for the slightest misdemeanor. Uh, but everything, in some ways, Wallace has nothing better to do than to run the household. So they keep a very, she keeps a very tight eye on accounts. She has what she calls her grumble book, which where she makes notes at the dinner party of what was right and wrong and went well. Uh, and they have uh, staff dressed in their own livery, um, extraordinary extravagant meals eight course meals uh they are often they're rather boring company and people for example duff cooper the ambassador has stories of of just not wanting to go and dine with them or certainly not wanting to sit next to them uh but that's what they do and they go on cruises there's some wonderful stories uh from rex harrison uh who met them when they were staying in positano um, Wallace is bored and, and, and begins to have affairs with, with young men, most notably a young gay guy called um, Jimmy Donahue. Uh, and um, it's a way, I think, of getting back at the Duke too. But they, they have a, a country house where they entertain again under a very strict formula. People have to come at a certain time. They eat at certain, you know, always at 8.45. 
the the food they 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 serve i have to say sounds pretty disgusting camembert ice cream and um uh, various things like that i mean lots of the sort of food that we no longer eat jellied jellied chicken and um and 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 she was criticized for her taste which is seen as rather tacky uh, but they spend a fortune on jewels, on furniture, on little mice and pugs. Uh, and that's really how they get their pleasure from this life of entertaining and being entertained. There's nothing else really to fill it. No, not much else. And it's a, it's an, it's certainly an interesting picture that, that builds up. Um, if we can revisit a point then that you made at the top of the interview, that theirs is um, often remembered as a great love story. You've already mentioned um, one of Wallace's affairs uh, in your last answer, but can we um, dig into that picture a little more in, in terms of their own dynamic, particularly in the later years? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's clear even just from looking at Lady Diana Cooper's diaries that that Wallace, even before they got married, was bored by him uh, and actually wanted didn't really want to be in his company. She's now stuck with him, uh, and she begins, as the marriage goes on, to resent it more and more. She's, I mean, he likes, like he, he, he's in effect likes the, the fact she's dominant, and she, frankly, bullies him to the point of tears on many occasions. Uh, and he's such a sort of sub that he enjoys this submissive person. Uh, this was true also his relationship with Frieda Dudley Ward, and. Um, People are shocked by how rude she is to him. Buzz off in a mosquito, she says at one point. Uh, and um, she's very open about the affair with Jimmy Donahue. I mean, there, there are stories of her going upstairs to to have sex with Donahue when he's sitting downstairs at the dining room table with, with guests. Um, and so she sort of humiliates him, which, you know, firstly, he, he loves. But it's, it's a very sad uh, relationship. Um, in which he becomes ever more devoted. He, he can't he almost not be in a room with her and is worried about where she is at any time. He re- relies on her for everything, to entertain him, uh, to direct his life. Uh, and she's a very strong personality. Partly she likes us, but partly she, she, she loses any sort of respect for him. Uh, and, and that continues all the way through, really, to his death. I mean, the stories, um, are, the romantic stories are that he sort of died in her arms. But the fact is that um, from the ner- we know from the nurses that even though her bedroom was a few doors away from him, she didn't see him for the last two weeks of his life. And he would call out for her and she would just ignore him. Um, it's a really poignant story. Here was a man absolutely obsessed with her who'd given up everything for her and she just treated him like dirt. And he never stops petitioning his family for her to be recognised in in a sort of a royal status. And how does that affect his relationship with his family in these many, many years after the, the crisis? Well, she never, she's never made her royal highness. The line is that, you know, why did we go through the abdication if she was going to be her royal highness? But it's very unfair that she's not made her royal highness. Uh, uh, his brothers who are married... Uh, and if he was to be treated as a younger a, a child of, of, of the, the king or the younger brother, you know they would they would she would be entitled to it. He's actually uh, made a prince when he's born, uh, and his wife should become uh, her royal highness. So uh, you know it's it's rather dubious legal precedent to say that that she's denied it. They insisted throughout their life that everyone had to curtsy to her, and and they were always at the head of the table and served first, and people couldn't leave dinner parties before they decided to leave, often very late. Uh, so, um, but all the way through, he kept coming back, talking to his brother, talking to Queen Mary, 
But particularly Queen Mary and uh, Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, were adamant that they hadn't gone through the abdication for her to become Her Royal Highness. Initially, there were concerns that the marriage wouldn't last and therefore they, you know, she would hold on to this title when there might be another wife. But even when it was clear that that wasn't going to happen, they were determined that she would not be given this accolade. And it was uh, a great source of shame for him. Uh, he, he felt that, that he should be able to provide this for his wife and he couldn't. And that was another factor in her losing respect for him. And it was the one thing that he could do for her and he failed at that. So it was a tension all the way through. Uh, and it's fascinating to see the royal correspondence. Most of, of course, is locked up at the royal archives, but things have got out just showing how strong um, the, the royal family are all the way through in not budging an inch in terms of giving him a job or giving him any sort of status. Right. And that picture is sort of, um, if there was any sort of leniency coming in later years, that picture is solidified by um, what's known later as the Marburg file. Could we talk about this, um, the find, you've already mentioned it uh, earlier on in our interview, uh, and what this means for him? Yes, I think the Marburg file perhaps explains why the royal family were determined to isolate him and really to have as little to do with him as possible. It wasn't just the abdication. And the Marburg file um, was the discovery uh, at the end of the war, um, in in fact, in the Russian zone, um, of uh, basically documents from the German um, uh, Foreign Office, particularly showing the correspondence with Windsor. Um, before the war uh, and also during the war, particularly in the summer of 1940 when during this Operation Willie, uh, and showing just how open he was to the approaches from the Germans uh, and how treacherous he was. Uh, and these documents were meant to be basically uh, burnt, uh, and f for various reasons, people, I think, thought it might be their calling card to escape. They were not burnt. They were just the just the, the, the tins were buried, and they were discovered and brought to to the um, Allies. And the British realised how uh, this was dynamite. The problem was that Americans also got copies of, th of this material, uh, and there's there's a whole section in the book, and indeed the whole post-war period is filled with the uh, British trying to suppress this information. The Americans say this is important for the Nuremberg trials, it's important historical documents that we should be publishing them. And the Americans, the British are saying, oh God, no, this is too awful. Uh, and um, Churchill is lobbying Eisenhower and, and, and various other people to say if, if, if they can't be destroyed, and they did destroy quite a lot of them, and quite a lot of them have disappeared. But if you, if you are going to do something, then let's try and delay it as long as possible. And that's what they do. They kick this into touch, really, until the late 1950s. But they are published uh, in 1957, and it's pretty clear this confirms uh, his, his involvement with the Nazis. Uh, and it's also very clear when you look at things like uh, Guy Little's diary and Alan Lassell's diary, that um, it, it's, they're not going through the motions. They're absolutely panicking about this. Uh, and um, they confirm that, you know, this is not just the Germans making it up. This is absolutely true. This is how he behaved. So that's great. that's a huge thing that hangs over him. Some of the telegrams remain closed and disappeared. Uh, the account of the meeting with Hitler in October 1937 has disappeared. So I suspect there's a lot more that we'll just never know about because they um, were destroyed or have still to be found. But this Marburg file certainly hung over him, and it's a it's a it's a pretty damning indictment of Churchill that he was prepared to censor our history in this way. 
uh, and others like Eisenhower were, were sort of half prepared to go along with him. And it was only the intransigence of the American historians who said, look, we're going to go public with this if you try and suppress it, that the story will be bigger than if we just publish it. But it was clear even when they came out, there were, there, there were statements made saying this is all rubbish and uh, this is all made up by the Germans and the Duke was entirely loyal and there, uh, for example, didn't circulate it widely. Um, the publisher, I, there was pressure put on the publisher. The, there was clearly no real press release that went out and there were very tame articles supporting the Duke put out by, by chums. So the whole thing they 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 tried to 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 suppress. What about then? Uh, this comes later, I think. But what about um, the Duke and Duchess of Windsor's own framing of their narrative? What attempts did they take in in forms of memoirs and interviews, etc.? Well, it's very interesting. They try, tried to shape the narrative from very early on. I mean, they had a man called um, Newbold Noise um, who came and interviewed them, but even before the abdication. And then when he wrote his piece, they didn't like it. Uh, having given him sort of an office in Buckingham Palace uh, and tried to sue him. They used a Nazi supporting lawyer to do so. Um, and then uh, all the way through, there were attempts to work with authors like Compton McKenzie, Robert Bruce Lockhart, Philip Guadella, uh, and to trash anyone who tried to write anything that was independent. They were constantly suing people. Uh, There's a man who wrote a book called um, Coronation uh, Commentary called Jeffrey Dennis. Uh, and that was their, their, their way. They tried to, to, to dissuade people from writing stories. Uh, but, of course, there was also this great divide between public opinion in Britain and in the States, where, of course, they were much more popular. And so they did interviews with um, people for television and in print, uh, um, most notably a series of articles in 1966 where they, they talked about the period after the abdication and were pretty disparaging about their family. Um, and then, of course, they had these two uh, uh, autobiographies, uh, his book, A King's Story, published in 1951, and hers, The Heart Has Its Reasons, in 1956, both ghosted by the same man. Um, uh, they'd gone th- through several ghostwriters um, who gave up because they wouldn't give the attention to the books, and they were telling them such a pack of lies that they just couldn't, for their own reputations, be associated with them. But eventually, this man, Charles Murphy, got these books out of them, uh, and they're quite interesting accounts. They sold quite well, um, but they were pretty deceitful, and they, uh, in fact, didn't even agree, uh, correspond the, the, the facts in the two books, uh, and were largely ignored, hardly reviewed, um, and so are interesting period pieces. But um, they certainly, uh, you know, cooperated with people who would shape the narrative that they wanted, uh, and were very careful who they gave interviews to. Um, they had a series of articles. She had a series of articles, something called McCall's Magazine, where she just put her own views out and, again, tried to create a separate, a different narrative. And at that time, of course, the royal family didn't really respond to anything. They did, certainly didn't publish anything uh, or cooperate with tame journalists in the same way as they do now. And so, uh, in some ways, an alternative narrative was allowed to be constructed, including the great love story of the century. Yes. Well, well, this narrative notwithstanding, um, your book, you know, has has lots of evidence of actions, views and character um, that paint a different picture. Uh, and, you know, there's much more evidence in the book that we haven't discussed today. But is there, um, is it fair to say that, that the line in your book is that ultimately uh, this abdication, it, it's a good thing for the monarchy? It's, 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 the best outcome there? Yes, I think we should have statues to Wallace. I mean, she saved us. Um, 
uh, you know, uh, it, it's clearly been one of the most traumatic moments uh, in royal history, uh, recent royal history. And of course, it plays to that trope of the, of the crown between public service and private pleasure. Uh, but, you know, I think Bertie proved to be a much better king than he would have been. Uh, and indeed, uh, Queen Elizabeth, a much better queen. She would have come to to, to, to reign, probably, eventually. Um, but given that the, the, the Duke of Windsor didn't die until 1972, she might not have come to the throne until at least 20 years later. So a very different story might have emerged. And if he'd been there, you know, would he have, for example, done some deal during the war with the Germans? Um, uh, if he, you know, if he hadn't married Wallace, also I mean, there's lots of counterfactual, interesting sort of um, things to explore. But if he hadn't met Wallace uh, and had married Frieda Dudley Ward or someone, would would history have been very different, and would he have been a much more uh, a much more respected figure? Indeed, it's a compelling question, and um, I hope that I do encourage our listeners to uh, read more and find out more in your book. Um, and I'll say again, it's Traitor King, the Duke and Duchess of Windsor in Exile. It's published by Blink Publishing, and it's out now. And Andrew, thank you so much for your time in talking to us about uh, the Duke and Duchess of Windsor today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. That was Andrew Lowney. As Eleanor mentioned, his book Traitor King is on sale now, and you can find a link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman, and Brittany Colley. Tomorrow, we have an Everything You Wanted to Know episode on the history of the British police. <laughs> <laughs>